2: as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Oh my god, oh
3: my god, you guys, we are so excited. I yes. wanted I wanted to mention this on social media a couple of days ago, but cat wouldn't let me.
1: No, I mean, I think well, I mean, if we're going to talk about it on on the social medias, of course.
3: But you wanted to announce this on the podcast first well, and I th- think that's
1: yep. you know, it makes sense.
3: No, it it does. It's absolutely the right thing to do. But I was just so excited to announce it. You know, we've got our our, our Halloween tour coming up. It's
1: been extended.
3: We're going to be in Boston at Laugh Boston on the 27th of October. We're going to be at uh, Comedy Zone in Charlotte on the 29th of October. And then Zany's Comedy Nightclub in Nashville on Wednesday, October 30th. That's Halloween Eve. And now a new date. We're so excited about this. We've had a lot of people that had mentioned, you know, all these shows you're doing are a long way away from us because we're over here on the West Coast. Maybe you should come to the West. Coast,
1: and so we're going to.
3: Yes, the end. <laughs> Goodbye. That's it, that's all we have to say.
1: Um, yeah, no, uh, the West is gonna get weird, dudes.
3: The West is gonna get really weird.
1: We're uh, bringing the show to San Francisco,
3: Cobb's Comedy Club. It's a legacy uh, nightclub. It's been there forever. It's uh, all the big... I mean, Robin Williams has played... I mean, come on, right? I'm, I'm serious. This is a big club with a huge legacy that goes back decades. It's a legendary comedy club. Uh, it's It's been in business since 1982, originally known as Cobb's Pub. Cobb's Comedy Club has featured some of the biggest comedians yeah. in the history of of comedy and you know people that are regularly on the Tonight Show and uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live and
1: yeah I've I also I heard they have spicy Cajun fries
3: so there you go so there's a good reason to come just for the spicy Cajun fries it sounds good even if we suck there's still <laughs>
1: spicy Cajun <kitchen> fries
3: <laughs> we're gonna be in San Francisco at Cobb's Comedy Club
1: one night only
3: that will be Wednesday October the sixteenth uh, sixteenth yes. So San Francisco, October 16th, and those are the only shows we're doing in 2019. Yes. As far as we know. No, Probably. that's it. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Because, because we're out of days off.
1: They're going to fire me. If <laughs> <laughs> they told me once again, you need to keep coming here. Yeah. Um, so Super Jazzed. One, I've never been to the West Coast. The furthest that I've been. Farthest. The most west that I've been, the most westerly, the westerliest uh, that I've been yep. is Albuquerque. So this, because Albuquerque beats Denver by I think like fifty miles. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And I'd been to uh, Burger King Denver well, in Denver once. Well, in my mind
3: map, Denver is a little bit more to the left.
1: Albuquerque is, is but it is. In, er.
3: You're a regular Rand McNally with feet.
1: Anyway, we're jazzed. Just... Yeah,
3: tickets will be going on sale very soon. We'll let you know. Keep your eye on the social. We're Ooh. looking forward to seeing you in San Francisco. Saint Archer
1: Hazy IPA. That sounds nice. I'm just looking at their menu. Now. Okay,
3: she's getting our drink orders ready already, <laughs> <laughs> and we're three months, four months away. So, San Francisco, October 16th; Boston, October 27th; October 29th in Charlotte, North Carolina; October 30th in Nashville. Geez, we hope you can make one of those.
1: Now, if you think about it, we booked these out um, exactly opposite of the way that we're performing them. So we booked them Nashville, Charlotte, Boston, San San Francisco. Francisco. But the actual event dates are going to be San Francisco, Boston, Charlotte, Nashville.
3: I'm exhausted just thinking about it. I
1: know, but it's going to be fun. It's going
3: to be so fun. All right, I get to go first. Oh. And uh, I want to talk about famous people in history, historic figures that we all know, and uh, some that we love. Most we look up to, or at least respect.
1: I look up to most people. I'm five, four and a half. Please don't leave me.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Dad joke from you. Okay. Anyway, as much as we honor and respect a lot of these people, they had some secrets that maybe you didn't know about. And And I'm going to tell you about
1: it. Oh, you are a secret teller lately. I am. You've had a lot of these episodes where Uh you're like, guess what? You probably didn't know this. Yeah. This person did this thing. You ever heard Lyndon Johnson talk about his ball sack? Here you go.
3: I don't know what episode that was, but uh, yeah, there is a previous episode where... We talk about Lyndon Johnson. We actually have audio of, of uh, former president Lyndon Johnson talking about how his Hager Slacks caught him right in the ball sack.
1: <laughs> my favorite part is when he references his bunghole.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Rise up in there, you know. It's like I'm 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 riding, I'm riding a, a razor, razor wire, wire fence. fence. <laughs> uh. Charles Dickens. Oh my god, we love this guy, right? He wrote classics like uh, Tale of Two Cities, Oliver Twist, The mm-hmm. Christmas Carol. The Pip One. Great Expectations.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the Pip One, you know.
3: <laughs> yeah. These are beloved tales. And because of that, and because of the heartwarming nature of, say, like a Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens is beloved. But he was actually kind of an obnoxious dink.
1: Yeah, I mean, all of his stories had kind of a dinkish quality to them. Yeah,
3: but when he wasn't, uh, you know, when he wasn't writing these these tales that mm-hmm. would live on for generations. Was he
1: bah humbugging his way through life?
3: No, he was actually, uh, he was a prankster. Oh. But he had kind of a dark side to him. He would do weird shit in the form of a prank. Just to see how people would react. Kind of like Andy Kaufman.
1: It's performance art.
3: It is performance art. He invented a language that nobody else understood, Mm -hmm. and he would often just run up to people in the street and start yelling at them in this fake language.
1: Amazing. (laughs) Did I ever tell you that my nephew invented a language? No. When he was 13, um, this is my super smart Oxfordy nephew guy. Oh, yeah, right. Um, so he was learning German, and he thought that it would be interesting to combine what we know of the basic qualities of the Romantic languages with the German language. And so started kind of combining. I think there was some Tolkien in there, too.
3: <laughs> Not sure. <laughs> really?
1: Um, I don't well. think it made its way into being uh, spoken between any people but you know yeah he was he was an interesting child he was 13.
3: So Charles Dickens during one particularly insane trip to the beach uh just grabbed (laughs) grabbed a random woman and dragged her out into the surf and said that uh he had fallen in love with her and that the two must drown together. Um, so, yeah, so he pulled her out into the surf and pretended that he was going to drown her.
1: Okay. That's, that's less pranky and
3: more creepy. Yeah. He was, he kind of stepped over the edge, I think. Sure. On that one. Sure. Alexander Graham Bell, telephone man. You know, I was going to say he invented the telephone, but really he's the one who got his patent first by just hours from what I understand. Look it up, you know. I'm sure if you don't know about that, that in its in and of itself is an interesting story.
1: Truly is, but I think that's a, the very similar story to a lot of inventions, especially around that time period. There was a mm. lot of racing to get things done. Yep. Uh, so, Allie, what was he up to?
3: Allie Graham Bell. AGB, get down with AGB.
1: Yeah, you know me. Bring.
3: It's ironic that since he was, you know, one of the inventors of the uh, telephone and certainly most widely credited for, for that invention, he was, quote, a devoted anti-deaf activist. What? Yeah. He was a proponent of eugenics. <gasps> and he said that people who were deaf should not be allowed to contaminate the human gene pool. No,
1: Allie. According
3: to Bell... Deaf people were especially threatening to normal society. Maybe more threatening to his telephone business at the time. That
1: is disgusting. He
3: even attempted to have sign language outlawed. What? <laughs> he wanted deaf teachers thrown out of schools.
1: Oh, my goodness.
3: And uh, the marriages of deaf individuals banned. If you were deaf, you couldn't get married.
1: Oh, because he didn't want you to procreate right. and make deaf babies? Because that's right. how it works all the time.
3: He was actually in favor of sterilizing deaf people. Wow,
1: that's terrible. Yeah. Does he have any living descendants? I don't
3: know, but that would be interesting to, to find out.
1: That could be a fun project.
3: I read that Abraham Lincoln's only living descendant died not too long ago. Really? Yeah.
1: But he was so near to us. Yeah. He was so recent.
3: Yeah. Oh. I know, but there are no more. Well,
1: I mean, you know, mm. mine ends with me. So, <laughs> sorry about that.
3: King Edward VII, England's king. He, of course, inherited the throne from Queen Victoria. He was her son, Bertie. They called him Bertie. That's cute. They called him Dirty Birdie behind his back.
1: Oh. Yeah. Is it because he was unhygienic or because he was into kink?
3: Well, I think they were all unhygienic back then, uh, but he was into kink. Nice. Yep. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep, 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 yep. In many ways, he seemed like yeah, outwardly kind of a a boring monarch. You know, he just, he signed treaties and mm-hmm. posed for paintings and stuff. Sure. But uh, he did some very <laughs> unkingly things in his spare time. According to Listverse, he had lots of extremely kinky sex. He fell out of favor with his mother, Queen Victoria, for allegedly causing the death of his father. So he decided to go for broke. He, he didn't worry about any repercussions. He embarked on a series of way over-the-top sexual adventures and escapades that would continue even after he took the throne. It included uh, royal wife swapping.
1: Not that weird. Go ahead.
3: Bathing in champagne with prostitutes.
1: Whatever. At least they're bathing.
3: And the commissioning of a very special piece of furniture. King Edward VII had a sex chair. <laughs> he was a pretty big guy. He was a rather large fellow. And he found that uh, the act of sex was exhausting Sure. for him. So he, uh, he had an ornate sex chair uh specifically built for him to his specifications uh that were that was able to seat three people which allowed him to uh you know to have a three-way and not exert himself in any way it looked almost like a very regal turn of the century gynecological table
1: so it okay so it was raised uh, off the ground?
3: Yeah, I got a picture of it. You want to see it?
1: Well, yes, absolutely. I want to see that. That's of course. That's a silly question. <laughs> I always thought something like a uh, like a weightlifting bench would be good, so because it, it's narrow and you can get your legs on <laughs> yeah. either side of it. Yeah.
3: Well, this is weird because, and I'm not really sure exactly how he used this. I mean, I, I see how he could use part of it, but I, the whole threesome thing, whole threesome thing, I I don't really quite get. But you can see that here are some handles for him to hang on to, okay, and his feet go fancy. there. And then he's got like stirrups here for one woman. I'm guessing that the other one lies in there somehow. But
1: okay, so if you're here, mm-hmm. and then these look like feet
3: hooks. There are like stirrups up there, and then there are places for him to put his feet. And like handlebars, you know what it looks like? It looks like a Nordic track with stirrups.
1: Oh, I wonder if this is for her right. to sit on, and these are like for placing her buttocks on, and these are for the backs of his heels, so he has he can stand. Right. No, and I, use the handles.
3: Sure. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. But how does the other person fit on that?
1: Oh, maybe they lay here inclined. Since he's facing this way. Okay,
3: so her face would be looking up at his ball sack. His royal Dumbledore, if you will.
1: That's right. His uh, crushed velvet tackle.
3: His kingly scepter.
1: Well done. Well
3: done. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if we can get one of those made. That looks kind of cool, actually. Hey. Anyway, it allowed him to get nasty in royal comfort.
1: I like it. Um, From what I've heard, a lot of the uh, monarchy have been kind of closeted kinkers
3: well even queen victoria his mother you talked about that in a previous episode oh
1: yeah but she- even more recently you know i mean you remember the tampon thing oh yeah Well let's not get into it but it just seems like because you have to be so rigid and upright and um, no pen intended in certain <laughs> parts of your life that maybe you express yourself in other ways. Because I hear nonstop kink stories about royalty or maybe you're just so well off and so fancy pants that you can just, you know, put it wherever you want and that's right. fine. I I think th- maybe th- it's a combination of both of I those things. I think
3: that's exactly what it is. It's a combination of those things. Ulysses S. Grant, how much do you love Ulysses?
1: I love him that beard.
3: You're going to love him less.
1: Girl. Oh, no.
3: Yeah. He was, you know, he is thought of as a hero in in so many ways. He played a big part in um, ending slavery.
1: Did he have a sex chair?
3: He didn't have a sex chair that I know of, although he should have. He believed that slavery was evil and he, he, he did work to end it. But he was a dedicated white supremacist. No. Yeah, he believed that uh, different races should not live together and could not live together peacefully, and so once the slaves were freed and he became president, he put a plan together. Rather than uh, try to you know work to solve racial tensions among whites and newly freed slaves, he just shipped them all off to Santo Domingo. He he paid Santa Domi- Santo Domingo. Uh, $1.5 million in exchange for allowing roughly 4 million forcefully relocated former slaves to stay there. He's like, you're free, but we're going to force you to go here, not stay with us.
1: I did not know about that.
3: Yeah, that's, yeah.
1: That's kind of a gross part of history, isn't it? It really is. And it really goes to show like how ignorant uh, people who even like, you agree with. Like, yeah, he didn't buy into slavery. Awesome. I don't either. And then it's like, oh, but you know what? <laughs> yeah.
3: Not all he the didn't way. think
1: that you could hang out no, even. No, that's
3: insane. No. And that they, should if they're not in, in, in slave chains and they, in large part, should not be here. Oh, that's upsetting. H.G. Wells... The Time machine, War of the Worlds one of my favorite science fiction writers of all time
1: He had some dark business going on yeah
3: He had more sex than we will ever have combined what? yeah
1: I don't know yeah
3: you look at pictures of HG Wells and you go hm mm. but he was getting busy
1: yeah he looked like a um, like a high school principal.
3: He did look like a high school principal. Not
1: that there's anything wrong with looking like a high school principal. It's just that you have certain ideas in your head of what a high school principal might look like. Mm-hmm. And they've been depicted in movies and television as such. You know, it's, if, you could be a very attractive high school principal. I'm not saying that you're not.
3: Well, he had a lot of, you know, everybody's got a hobby. His hobby was collecting uh, unusual sexual adventures. Truly legendary. He, he, um, he kept a detailed journal. The daughter of a close friend was described as, quote, most interestingly hairy. Oh. And the friend herself as insatiable. An Australian novelist was, quote, entertained on a copy of a bad review she had received in his journal, which uh, he burned afterwards. Uh, Wells described himself, he would design his little entries as, your Lord the Jaguar.
1: Oh, my.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: So, not just into it, but like thought a lot of oh, himself. A lot of himself. Okay.
3: And these erotic escapades continued right up until he died.
1: Okay. That's probably why.
3: <laughs> probably why he died. Yeah. Could be. Charles Lindbergh, of course, first got to fly across the Atlantic.
1: Mm hmm.
3: He was beloved by everyone. He was a hero. Ticker tape parade when he uh, got back to New York City. And of course, you know, we know about uh, a couple of things that you know, his kidnapped child, that quote unquote, yeah, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and that he was a Nazi sympathizer mm-hmm. in the early days. But he also, because he had an airplane, uh, used it to his advantage. Uh, he was married to three different women in three different parts of the world, and oh. none of them knew about it.
1: My goodness. Yep.
3: A total of three families. Um his wife, Ann, his secretary, Valeska, and uh, one or two sisters in Munich, Germany. It wasn't clear whether that was just one of the sisters or two of them. Got it. It just a...
1: seems like so much work.
3: Well, he had an airplane. Maybe no. that's what drove him to, to fly across the Atlantic to be the first one. He had to get it on. You know what I'm saying? That's a driving motivational force for a horny aviator.
1: Yeah, but he could take a bus to the nearby town And get it on.
3: Yeah, I suppose. But these chicks were German.
1: (laughs) Okay, fair enough.
3: The children that he had with these other women, Mm -hmm. they only knew him by a fake name.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, I I just still, I think it's a lot of work.
3: (laughs) It's way too much work. And we're going to end with this one, Hans Christian Andersen, or Hans. Hans. Hans Christian Andersen, of course, wrote some of the most beloved fairy tales of all time, many that were adapted into Disney classics, like The Little Mermaid. He wrote The Ugly Duckling, The Snow Queen, and that was adapted into Frozen. So we tend to think of him as a gentle, pure sort of person with a happy smile on his face just writing beloved children's tales um do we one thing that most people don't realize about hans christian Andersen was that he was uh, a chronic masturbator oh yeah how did
1: he have time to write
3: maybe that's why he never got writer's cramp he was obsessed with masturbation i guess he was pretty shy and so he was reluctant to have any kind of a relationship with anybody else. Okay. He didn't even attempt to have sex with anybody else. But he had a very high sexual uh, sexual appetite. So he enjoyed a lot of alone time. Got it. And he journaled it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. He
3: even made a note after each time that he yanked it. Huh. Put it right in his diary for future generations to read. Sure. He would also write, Things like the person he was thinking about while he was, while he was doing it in oh. each particular session.
2: Okay, that's He exciting. developed
3: a, a, a bit of a, a habit of uh, visiting brothels. And he would go in and he would just talk to the sex workers. He wouldn't employ them for sex. He would employ them for conversation. Mm-hmm. And then he would go home and take care of business. Oh,
1: wow. That's and, an interesting way to go about it. And
3: then make another journal entry. The, the last entry in his journal... Simply said, "quote, penis sore." <laughs> Hans Christian Andersen. Wow. Yeah,
1: yeah, that is go. eloquent.
3: <laughs> he, he certainly had a way with prose. If you know what I mean.
1: Well, that is not something I knew. <laughs> I. I find the journaling about it, the weird part. (laughs) Like, I don't mean however much you masturbate, whatever. I don't, I do not care. Um, But the the taking notes is the the interesting
3: part. Yeah. Was he like on a Saturday night, he would just, you know, pour himself a, a, a glass of cognac and sit by a roaring fire and then just read his notes from the previous week of how he did it and who he thought of and how sore his penis is. That silly Dane. And now, that thing in the middle. Here's some weird things people found in rental cars.
1: Number five, a hand grenade. In this situation, the uh, renters did contact local police when they found a hand grenade inside a rental car, which uh, was returned in Atlanta. It actually was not real, but that didn't mean much to the people who found it originally.
3: No. Honey, I think the maps and the glove... Box, can you, oh my god, an incendiary device. Number four, a doctor's note indicating the driver was positive for hepatitis C. It was tucked between the seat.
1: Yeah, you're going to want to sanitize that <laughs> car.
3: Yeah.
1: Number three, undies.
3: Used or new?
1: While cleaning out uh, rental cars, the revelation that cleaning staff frequently find items of clothing left behind and have had to deal with underwear on many occasions, both clean and dirty.
3: Number two, a Scottish Piper's hat. One of those big furry hats that bagpipers wear. How can you forget your Scottish Piper's hat in a rental car?
1: I would never go anywhere without my Scottish Piper's hat. And number one, a suit of armor. How exactly someone forgot they left their suit of armor in a rental car? <laughs> We're not sure.
3: Must have been an SUV.
0: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, And of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more, And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast
2: wherever you get your podcasts. The box of oddities. It's not for everyone.
3: Got an email from Vance. He said, I just started listening to your podcast. You guys are uh, the freaking best. I have to tell you a funny story. Uh, regarding the butt plug Alexa episode, in an earlier episode, we we said Alexa, put butt plugs on my shopping list, just as a little comedy time bomb in there, and we're still getting responses from people.
1: Well, you just said it again. Alexa, so.
3: cancel order. There, now we're all set. Our last order was a Kindle ebook. Alexa, Alexa, stop! Damn it! What books you order? I can't tell you. Had to do with butt plugs. I was driving to Walmart and my car does not have air conditioning and it was like 90 degrees outside. I had the windows rolled down listening to you guys on the highway. I turned up your beautiful voices pretty loud. However, when I got to the Walmart parking lot, I forgot to turn the volume down. I was driving up. I drove up beside a a lady with a baby and Jethro said, Alexa, put butt plugs on my shopping list. And the lady looked at me like I had said it. Uh, I looked at her and said with a very high pitched voice, it's a podcast. <laughs> I said it that way because I didn't want her to think that I was using butt plugs, but but a freak flying my freak flag. Love you guys. I don't want to catch up because I don't want to have to wait for the next episode to come out. Thanks, Vance. I appreciate that. Always love a good butt plug story. <laughs> what you got for me?
1: Oh, all right. Well, OK. <clears throat> uh, uh, um This is going to get wild. Okay. Although there is a description of a kind of hook used to pull meats out of cooking pots in the Bible, and a five-pronged fork-like utensil used for turning roasted meats in Homer's Odyssey, the first documented use in Europe of a fork with tines at the table while eating is from the 11th century. Yes, kids, we're talking about the history of the fork. Holy
3: shit, prepare yourselves. Okay, all right. All right. We're gonna do a deep dive on cutlery.
1: Dude, you're not even gonna believe it. It's gonna be so rad. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Someone came up to me at work earlier today and they started talking to me and I just put my hand straight up toward their face and said, I can't. I'm learning about the history of the fork.
2: <laughs> I don't believe
1: that person will ever speak to me again. Well, all right. So the fork is really the late comer to the party/slash table. And so obviously, knives. Pretty much the uh, the sharpened axes, our oldest human tools, the things that we need to cut the things. Sure,
3: sure. And people would use them as a food delivery device as well. That's
1: exactly. And
3: hobos still do. They, and my dad did. Yeah.
1: He had... He, a, he
3: beans on the knife? Not,
1: and, a, not beans, no. But he had a jackknife that he kept in his pocket at all times, uh-huh. that was used for all things.
3: So he cut an apple and he'd just eat it right off the knife blade.
1: Yep. That and then clean his nails with it. Su-
3: such a main thing to do. Did he rinse it off after he it? No. No. Okay.
1: Never rinsed it. Oh, never. Oh,
3: my God. He also
1: never got sick.
3: That's amazing.
1: Yeah, well, he was gross. <laughs> So anyway.
3: Yeah, he was a mill worker. He was. So yeah. he had like mill oil grease under his nails. Well no,
1: he didn't get greasy hands. He he stayed in a booth. He was
3: a booth man. Oh, he was the booth man.
1: Yeah. Anyway. It was paper tender. Paper tender, bub anyway. Okay. So it's likely that the first spoons derived from whichever local objects were Uh, able to scoop up liquids. The word for spoon in both Latin and Greek derives from a snail shell uh, while the Anglo-Saxon spoon uh, means chip so probably a rounded piece of maybe a bowl or something that could be used to scoop. Okay. Uh, The shape of the fork has actually been around for much longer than the actual utensil itself. Can you believe we're actually talking about the history of the fork? I'm so excited. So Fork from the Latin furca, which means pitchfork. Um, according to Wiki, bone forks have been found in archaeological sites of the. Why are you laughing at me?
3: Bone forks. Bone fork. forks? Yeah.
1: Like forks made of bone.
3: Sure. No, I get it.
1: Not for stabbing your wiener. Is that- <laughs> no, it's not what I was
3: <laughs> what thinking. What were you of? thinking? <clears throat> Nothing. Go ahead. What
1: would be weirder than stabbing your wiener? So. Twenty four hundred to nineteen hundred BC, the Shang Dynasty, sixteen hundred to ten fifty, uh, as well as later Chinese dynasties, uh, are are known to have archaeological digs uncover items from that time that are very fork like in nature.
3: They're forkish.
1: They're forkish. Um, a stone carving from an Eastern Han tomb depicts three hanging two-pronged forks in a dining scene. Uh, Similar forks have been depicted on top of a stove in a scene in another Eastern Han tomb. And, um... It's thought that the real difference between some of these earlier representations of forks and what we now know as forks is when it made its way to the table. So serving forks have been a thing for much longer than dining forks have been a thing.
3: Was it considered uh, impolite to use a fork? While you were eating?
1: No, it just wasn't a thing. Okay. Forks are really superfluous. Okay. Anything that you can eat with a fork, you can pick up with your fingers. I got gotcha. you. So it w- was never needed. Uh, forks were used to uh, jab things that were cooking so that you wouldn't burn your hands. Mm-hmm. Um, forks were used to turn things. Okay. Sure. So, okay. Okay.
3: So they were more of a kitchen utensil as opposed to a dining
1: Yep, they were about cooking and service rather than consuming. Although its origin may actually go back to ancient Greece, the personal table fork was most likely invented in the Eastern Roman Byzantine Empire, where they were uh, common in use by the 4th century. So in the first piece of evidence found regarding the fork... The Greek born, and this is written evidence, so not archaeological digs or something like that, but this is written.
3: It's not speculative. That's right. Okay.
1: Um, The first written piece of evidence found uh, the Greek born Dogisa Maria Argira in Venice was known to have used a fork to eat. So the source for this story, uh, St. Peter Damian, was clearly not pleased with its use, having This to say about the luxury, such was the luxury of her habits that she designed not to touch her food with her fingers, but would command her eunuchs to cut it up into small pieces, which she would impale on a certain golden instrument with two prongs and thus carry it to her mouth.
3: That must have seemed weird at the time. Really? And and very extravagant. Oh,
1: absolutely. And it was known that um, early fork usage was not a smooth process. It was clumsy and weird. And uh, we'll actually get into that a little bit. The second piece of evidence found, uh, according to this particular blog that I found, which is amazing and has so much information about utensils of all sorts (laughs) you guys dinnerware um (laughs) the uh, second piece of evidence comes from an 11th century illustrated manuscript from mont's casino of two men using a two-pronged fork so again it seems very popular the idea that the cooking and serving instrument was kind of augmented to make its way to a table i see so in early Persia, normally meat was eaten by stripping the meat off the bones with one's fingers and then sucking the marrow out of the bones. But the Daquans were the first ones to eat meat with a barjin and knife. And that's spelled B-A-R-J-Y-N. And that is a pretty obscure term, but it appears to be cutlery very similar to a fork. And the word might also derive from the Persian word for glove. So it leads the researchers to believe that in that period of time, in that part of the world, maybe instead of using a fork, they used gloves so that their hands wouldn't get grimy while they ate. Oh,
3: no kidding.
1: Which got me to thinking that it would be really cool to have gloves with like spikes on the ends of the <laughs> fingers. So you could use yeah. your fingers like spiky fork hands. Like
3: Freddie. Like Freddy.
1: Right. Yeah. So the usage of the fork worldwide was very sporadic and came about slowly. In 1526, in a work published in Venice called Opera Nova, che opera, it's a lot of words, and um, The lead character had a table setting and the table setting was described. It involved plates, a piece of bread, a cracker, a cake upon them and the settings were flanked with a knife and fork. And uh, that is a very early mention of fork. By the 11th century, the table fork had become increasingly prevalent in where the Italian peninsula, Uh, much earlier and much more enthusiastically by the people there than other European regions because of pasta. It became ah. so much easier to eat pasta with a fork that you could spin around. How did they
3: eat pasta before there was a fork?
1: You no, know, they used a long wooden spike, to, kind to, of like a chopstick.
3: One chopstick to eat spaghetti with. I guess,
1: I don't understand That's it. That's stupid. So here's something fun. In the time of Henry the Third. Fork owners would have been very well off. Thank you very much,
3: <laughs> Did sir. they have their own association? No. The Royal Fork Owners Association?
1: However... Most of them would have had a set of cutlery that traveled with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, They would have had forks and knives housed in a carrying case that could be slung over the shoulder or around the waist. It wasn't until the late 1600s and early 1700s that people began to purchase multiple sets of silverware for their homes. And uh, until that point, you carried your own utensils with you. And that's according to uh, an amazing article that I read in Slate. By the 14th century, the table fork had become pretty commonplace. Ferdinand Brudel notes in The Structure of Everyday Life, around the beginning of the 18th century, Louis XIV forbade his children to eat with forks. (laughs) Apparently, their tutor had taught them that it was the the appropriate way to consume foods. Right. And uh, no, no, no. Louis was like, nuh-uh, forks are forbade in this house which I think is amazing, apparently. So he
3: Louis XIV uh-huh. banned forks.
1: Yeah, didn't like them at all.
3: From his palace. Right. And what, he forced people to eat spaghetti with a wooden spike?
1: I know, it sounds God. insane, right?
3: What the hell is wrong with that guy?
1: So then there was the invention of silver plating techniques. Let
3: them eat cake, but they can't have a fork to do it with.
1: <laughs> and uh, silverware became a much more popular thing. It became very commonplace. And forks became so widely understood as being not just Part of proper etiquette, um, not just convenient, but so um, adaptable for individual needs. So now we know that there are oyster forks and lobster forks and salad forks and berry forks and lettuce forks and sardine forks and pickle forks and fish forks and pastry forks. It's it's
3: a lot of fork and forks.
1: It sure is. Um, and it all started from the the giant spit fork uh, that that they would use to to turn meat on the on the thingy with.
3: With the original spit fork, <clears throat> it sounds like uh, it sounds like a medieval weapon that mm-hmm. may have been adapted for that, like a a trident kind of thing, or oh sure, something like that that they would use on the battlefield. Hey. This will help us serve meat.
1: Well, it's the same as like a pitchfork. You know, the pitchfork was used for uh, cleaning out stalls and such. And wait a minute.
3: (laughs) It's like your dad with his knife cleaning his nails. It's kind
1: of like that. And
3: we're going to muck out this stall And then we're going to turn the roast.
1: Yeah. So anyway. Bon appétit, mon frere. There, my uh, exciting and wonderful, enthusiastic (laughs) friends, is the history of the (laughs) fork.
3: So that spanned how much time between the original spit fork to to it becoming a proper etiquette and an everyday utensil?
1: Well, that's hard to say because um,
3: like a thousand years.
1: Well, the you know archaeological digs found the forks from twenty four hundred BC.
3: Wow! So wow. The. So what would be considered the pinnacle of fork development? The spork.
1: Well, I mean, it certainly is the most multi-purpose.
3: Why didn't they invent that first? It just seems to make sense.
1: Well, I think it's maybe hard to combine things when you have basic understanding of metals.
3: Yeah, that's true. Plus, it would be really hard to eat spaghetti with a spork.
1: I would think so. You just got those little ones and you're trying to jam it. Yeah, yeah, no. no. Two sporks, maybe. Maybe. Like using them in unison. It's like that um, scene in Edward Penis Hands where sure. he's trying to eat spaghetti. Yeah. Anyway, Edward, what? What?
3: Edward, what? What? That's an adaptation that I'm not quite as familiar with, but sweetie, um, I. Um, You're gonna leave me? No, I'm not. I'm not gonna leave you. Cool. Um, but I do have to say that I never thought I would. I would say this to you. Your fork story was interesting. (laughs) Forks. Forks, indeed. We'll let you know when tickets go on sale for the San Francisco show.
1: Also, when our uh, patented box of oddities forks go on sale at our (laughs) merch store.
3: Yeah, they're electric they are there, electric forks.
1: Speaking of which, there are some pretty cool new designs there, um, including our pride design. If you haven't had a chance to check out uh, our merch uh, recently, maybe. Do, I mean, we don't have any forks. I'm sorry.
3: Somebody sent us a, a a photo of them standing in front of Mount Rushmore wearing an Anyhoozle shirt.
1: Oh, that's amazing. I love that. Yes, send us all of your pictures. Yes. If you have pictures of you in your Box of Oddities stuff, I want to see it. I want to see it good.
3: Box of Oddities will land on your phone once again on Thursday.
1: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
2: Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to, to beseech you for assistance. The box of oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you. To provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.
0: If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science.